All right, so let me ask a question. This is going to be uh, participation. So you got to raise your hands. Um, first question is simply this. Do you believe, okay, it's a belief question. Do you believe that Santa is a generous man? Okay, show of hands. All right, just play along. Okay, just play along. <laughs> Tough question to answer, I know, but just play along. Do you believe the guy in the red suit to be a generous man? Now, it's interesting, you can put your hands down because not many of you want to play my game. Um, <laughs> but if what we know of him is true, then you'd, we'd have to say no. If what we know of Santa is actually true, uh, then we'd have to say, well, no, then he's not generous. Because according to the record book, Santa gives gifts based on performance. He's got a list that he meticulously at least checks twice. And really, there's only two categories with Santa. There's either, you're either on the naughty side or you're on the nice side. Now, if you're on the naughty side, well, you're out of luck. Uh, you get coal, apparently, which just seems cruel because I'm not sure why you would actually give a kid coal. What's he going to do with coal? It's like, well, what's the point? Why give him anything? So if you're naughty and that's what your performance was, then Santa gives you what you, you know, he gives you coal. But if you're on the nice list, then you just get all sorts of good things from Apple uh, because that's where all good gifts ultimately come from. Now, I realize it might sound like a very silly notion, but there are a lot of people who wish, actually, God was a little bit more like Santa, uh, called Santa Theology. Now, I was reading in a pretty interesting book this week, and uh, the author just made this observation. He said, Santa, he doesn't demand a relationship with you. He just slips into your place once a year, leaves some presents, eats a cookie, and he moves on. There's no need to even get out of bed to have a conversation with him. It's the perfect deal. Just make sure you do good, and he'll give you a few presents to keep you happy until he comes again. Now, again, I, I know most of us probably wouldn't verbalize, or people around us wouldn't verbalize, yeah, I wish God was a little bit more like Santa, but as I really considered uh, this idea of, of Santa theology, there's just a lot of people who are like, yeah, what, what a deal. I get the good things if I do some good things, and I don't even have to talk to him. I can stay asleep. He can just come in, do his thing. I can just do my thing. We don't even have to talk to each other. It's the perfect relationship. But I think of the many obvious things that would be wrong with this relationship, Santa's gift giving is not rooted actually in his generosity it's really more of a reward system. His gift giving is really based a little bit more on performance. Now, I would have to say it's, it's generous. Anytime someone gives a gift, it's, there's some level of generosity. But generosity, and this is what I'd love for us to see, generosity is not so much about the gift. Uh, it's about to whom the gift is actually given. So I think typically when we think about being generous, we think about the size, the cost of the gift. Uh, that's part of it. But I'd say a bigger part of it, generosity is going to be seen in actually to whom the gift has been given. And so this morning, we're looking at the season to be generous. And what I would love for us to accomplish, and these are my two hopes for uh, this message today, is you'd leave here convinced that God is a generous God. That you would just have, beyond a shadow of a doubt, know that God and, and know why God is a generous God. You see, we all have thoughts and ideas about what God is like, uh, and my hope would be 
that if someone were to ask you, what is God like? When you think about God, what do you think about? Well, gosh, the first thing that comes to mind, he's, he's generous. He's generous. And he's not like Santa generous. He's a totally different type of generous. So that would be number one. And the second thing that I'd love to accomplish today is kind of paint a picture for you of what would it look like to live a generous lifestyle. And again, generous is not going to be you go out and just get a bunch of people gifts. But I want to hopefully paint a picture. If this is who God is and this is what generosity means, what would it look like for us us to live our lives uh, generously? Uh, Because God has been generous to us. Uh, All right. So first question, how might we know God to be a generous God? Like, how would you know? If, if someone asked you and you said, hey, he's a generous God, what would you actually say? Of, well, this is why I know God is a generous God. Again, we all have opinions about God. Even if you're an atheist, an anti-theist, you don't believe in God, you still have a belief about God that specifically there is no God. So there is, all of us have ideas, thoughts about God. What are your current thoughts about God? I believe God to be a generous God. And if someone were to say, well, Michael, why do you believe God is generous? This is exactly what I would say. He showed up. I know and I believe God to be a generous God because God showed up. He came. He did not stand back or keep his distance. God entered into the world he created so that those he created, us, could have a relationship with him. He he didn't stand back at afar. We didn't have to kind of wonder, well, where is God and, and what is God like? And does he care about us? Does he know us? Does he love us? Does he have a plan for us? Does he have a purpose for us? The reason I know that God is generous is because God came. And at the heart of the Christmas message of why we even celebrate Christmas is we celebrate God coming into humanity. This is uh, John chapter one. And we're going to focus on John chapter one, what's known as the prologue. Uh, and we're going to look at a handful of ver- verses in John chapter one. It says this, in the beginning, the word already existed. Now you notice that word is capitalized, capital W. We're talking about a pronoun here. And as John walks through this gospel, what we're actually talking about, the word is Jesus, is a person. The word was with God and the word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him and nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created and his life brought light to everyone. Now, if you're familiar with the gospels, that would be Matthew and Mark, Luke and John, all four different gospel accounts start their gospels in a very different way. And what I love about what the apostle John has done in the beginning of his account uh, is he makes one thing clear. The word or Jesus, he says, From the very first thing, he always existed. There was never a point in time when the word or Jesus did not exist. So there was never a point in all of eternity where Jesus was not. He always was. So uh, John makes clear that the word was not only present at creation because he was there and everything created through him, but it was the word, and I love how he said it, it gives light uh, and life and light to everything. So Jesus was always existent. He gives life and light to everything. But the miracle of Christmas is this. The word showed up. The word took on human flesh. 
the word became one of us. John 1.14 says it like this. So the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the father's one and only son. I really want you to catch this. This is an amazing reality. I want you to consider God came to us. God came to you. God came to me. And if that's true, then do you know what that means? I don't have to work my way towards him. I don't have to be filled with all sorts of doubts and fears and concerns of, well, where is God? And what is God like? Because in the incarnation, and that's the theological word for what we celebrate at Christmas, is, is Jesus became, the word became flesh. Jesus became human. I don't have to wonder what God is like because he came to us. Jay Packer, theologian, pastor, teacher said, like, said it like this, nothing in fiction is so fantastic as this truth of the incarnation. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic. That's his way of saying, this is the most amazing thing, the amazing story that could ever be told. God came to us. If that happened, if that's true, then that rules out me trying to work my way towards him or me trying to find my way towards him because he came to us. Tim Keller said it like this, incarnation. If you understand the word incarnation, you'll understand what Christmas is about. The invisible has become visible. In other words, God has become human. Let me read that again, see if it's on the screen. If you understand the word incarnation, you'll understand what Christmas is about. The invisible became, invisible became visible. In other words, God has become human. That's what Christmas is about. God came near. God came to us. God came pursuing us. And this amazing truth was not just this random event that happened 2,000 years ago. God actually, in his word, promised, I will come. I will show up. I will enter into my creation so the created will know its creator. 700 years before Jesus came, the prophet Isaiah said this, all right then. Okay, so in Isaiah chapter 7, if you read the first 13 verses, the people are looking for evidence. They want proof. And so Isaiah says this to them in uh, uh, verse 14. All right, then the Lord himself will give you the sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. So not some random event. God promised he would come. And not just send anyone. He came himself, Emmanuel, with us is God. Paul, the apostle Paul, as he's reflecting back on Christ and who Christ is and what Christ did and he accomplished, he said this in Galatians chapter four, but when the time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman. So he's able to look at, at the right moment in time, at the perfect time, God said, I'm sending my son. I am coming into my creation. And what's amazing about this incarnation, not only is it that he came, 
but how he came in the most humblest of circumstances. He didn't come riding a cloud that was lit up on fire and he didn't come in some miraculous way in terms of a show and lights where people would be in awe and wonder and amazement of the spectacularness of it. He came born of a virgin, born in a small town where it wasn't even on the map. It says this in Philippians, uh, Paul reflecting on the incarnation, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. So what that says is Jesus literally is humbled himself and came in the most humbling way possible. All right, so how do these few verses, how does John 1.14, where it just says the word became human, the word became flesh, how does that actually communicate to any of us that God is actually a generous God? So if you read those verses and someone say, well, why does that mean that God is somehow generous? Uh, how would you answer them? And again, this is how I wrote it down. Generosity is not so much about the gift, but to whom the gift is given. Jesus came into a world and he knew that the world would not recognize him. And he also knew that the world re would reject him. And what makes the incarnation, the coming of God into his world so amazing is he still came. He didn't survey the crowd and be like, well, they're going to reject me and they're not even going to know me. So forget it. I'm not coming. Generosity is about what he gave to a people that were not deserving. It says like this in John chapter one, he came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people and even they rejected him. So Jesus didn't come into the world knowing that people were going to embrace them. He came into the world to embrace us. That's what it means to be generous. He didn't come knowing that he would get something, be received, be worshiped, be adored. He came knowing he would be rejected, but he still came. And his message was not just one simply of, hey, I, I want you to know God loves you. His message was so much more profound of, I don't want you to know something. I want you to see something. I want you to have tangible evidence of the demonstration of God's great love for you. And why he came was not just so we would know, but we would see a demonstration. Erwin uh, McManus in his book, um, uh, Soul Cravings, uh, said it like this. If the message that God wants to get across to us is just about getting our beliefs right, well, then he didn't need to come himself. If God's entire intent was to clarify right from wrong, well, no personal visitation was necessary. If the ultimate end was simply to overwhelm us with the miraculous, so that we could finally believe, well, then even God taking on flesh and blood walking among us was far from necessary. There is only one reason for God to come himself, because in issues of love, you just can't have someone else stand in for you. When it comes to love, it has to be face to face. Why did he come? He wants you to know that you, he loves you but he also wanted you to have a tangible demonstration of just how much he loves you. Now, I'm going to guess that probably every single person that's in this room right now and everyone that was here this morning at 9 a.m., it is not new information or new news to you for me to tell you, you are loved by God. And I want you to know that. I want you to hear that again. I don't think we hear that enough. You are, every single one of you are 
absolutely, completely loved by God. Now, that should put a tremendous smile on our face. But I think that statement, that phrase, that truth doesn't pack the punch that it could and that it should for the very reason of when we hear it, if we're honest with ourselves, our thought is, well, of course, why wouldn't he? Why, why wouldn't God love me? Look at me. I know I'm not perfect, but I'm a very lovable person. And so why this is not so amazing to us is because we start from the posture of, I'm an easy person to love. Rather than starting from the posture of, really, there is nothing in me that is lovable, but God's love is just transforming me. And a book that was just super helpful on this uh, very subject was a book called The Ragamuffin Gospel by an author named Brennan Manning. And I remember I read The Ragamuffin Gospel in 1991. Uh, and outside of scripture at that point in time, it was probably the single book that just shaped how I understood things like grace and God's love. And he said, uh, this is a, a snippet of, uh, of this book. He has a single relentless stance towards us. He loves us. My deepest awareness of myself is that I am deeply loved by Jesus Christ and I've done nothing to earn it or deserve it. I am lovable only because he loves me. That one last sentence right there, I am lovable only because he loves me. That humbled me to the core when I first read that uh, nearly 21 years ago. And so why it is amazing to me that God loves me is because I'm not a lovable person. I've got pride. I've got arrogance. I've got selfishness and self-centeredness and self-sufficiency. So it's not like I've given him a laundry list of reasons of why he could and should love me. I've given him many reasons why he shouldn't. But I am lovable only because he loves me. Again, the generosity of God is seen in that he entered into his creation so that it would be possible for you and I to know our creator for eternity. That's what's so amazing about Christmas. That's what's so amazing about the incarnation. The generosity of God is on full display when he came, when he showed up. Now, have you ever met people that like when they walk into a room, uh, the room changes? They're like a game changer of sorts. They just bring the, a di different dynamic, a different energy, a different joy, a different like, it just something happens. You would think if God showed up, well, what happened? Like, was there a difference? Was there an impact? Did it have any effect on the world? Did it have any effect on people? Does it have any effect on us? And as I look at John's gospel in chapter one, there are three, and it's not exhaustive, but there are three things that I see, again, all rooted in the generosity of God because he came. These are three things that happened that changed everything. I encourage you to write these down. Number one would simply be this. His light, it conquers the darkness. His light conquers the darkness. John chapter one, verse four and five says this. The word gave life to everything that was created and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. So because he came, because God took on flesh because the word became flesh. The light has conquered the darkness. 
Now, I, I don't think I would have to convince anybody here and anyone who doesn't even have any thoughts about God that this is a very dark world that we live in, meaning there is evil in our world. Evil was on full display about a week and a half ago in Newtown, Connecticut. There is darkness in our world because people choose to do evil things to one another. Now, it would be easy to look at that and be like, that is just evil in its most raw, unrestrained. But you know what? If I'm honest, I also have to say, man, there is, I do evil. Anytime that I choose willingly not to forgive somebody, anytime that I willingly choose not to love somebody, anytime that I choose any of those things, I'm perpetuating the darkness in this world. I love how Jesus, he said this himself, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So if you know Jesus, you have the light of the world that is living within you. So coming from you is not darkness, but light. And it is not just a light that flickers and somehow just loses. No, it's a light that shines brightly and conquers the darkness. And again, this is not a light that just randomly appeared out of nowhere. Again, Isaiah said it like this in chapter 9. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. So when Christ came, when the word became flesh, the light of God had dawned, and it was a light that conquered darkness. None of us should be shocked at the darkness in the world we live in. We should be saddened by it, but we shouldn't be shocked at, wow, that, how, where's that darkness coming from? We live in a dark world. What that should do for us is inspire us to be light. Everywhere we go, we have the opportunity to be light. Now, I don't know if you're a fan of Bob Marley or not, um, but uh, Bob Marley, one of his big things, if you listen to any of his music, so much of his music was about peace and love and things like that. And uh, the story is that uh, uh, Bob Marley was scheduled to play at this peace uh, benefit uh, where he was the main attraction. And uh, two days before he was scheduled to put on a concert uh, at this peace rally, he was shot. Two days later, when it came time for him to play, he stepped up on stage and played. And after the concert was over, reporters of like, how? You were just shot two days ago. People tried to take you out. What are you doing here? You were just shot. And his response was simple but brilliant. The people who are trying to make this world worse are not taking the day off. Why should I? And they went on to talk about, I see what my job is, is to light up the darkness. Now, whether you like Bob Marley or not is not my point. My point is, if you are a Christian, you have the light of the world living in you. Yes, it's a dark world, but we're light. So what this means, practically speaking, is you are where you are because God's placed you there so you can be a light. So your job is not just some job for you to get a paycheck. You are there specifically by God for God to be a light in a very dark place. The place you live, your home, your apartment, wherever you are, you are there 
because God has placed and planted you there so you could be a light that would shine bright. And you get this. If it is a dark room, like if it was pitch black and I just lit one candle, it's, it's, there's still darkness, but now there's a light that is starting to wash away the darkness. Because Jesus took on flesh, because the word became human, the impact that it has is light has conquered the darkness. Number two, the second effect that the word becoming flesh has is this. He makes a way for us to be in the family of God. Meaning if the word did not become flesh, if Jesus did not become human, there is no way that I would be able to be called a son or a daughter of God. I would not be able to be in God's family. John 1.12 says this, but to all, to all, okay? All means everybody to all who believed him, accepted him. He gave the right to become children of God. Isn't it amazing? Like this is one of those things that should just put smile from ear to ear on your face. That you could be considered a son or a daughter of God. That when you think about God, you can think about God not in some abstract terms or some distant cosmic force deity that's just out there. And when you consider God, you can consider God, he's your father. Now, maybe not for all of us here, but for many of us here, the concept of God as father, is, it's painful because you didn't have a good father and you didn't have a godly father. You may have had a father who totally left you, abandoned you. You may have had a father who was completely unemotional with you and never expressed any care or concern for you except when you annoyed him and then you knew how he felt about you. He's not like your dad. God is not like your father. He is so different. And because the word became flesh, I can now know God as father. And if you would just indulge me for a few minutes, I would love to brag to you about who my father is. Because when I consider God as my father, I am absolutely blown away and amazed that I can call God my father because God is omnipresent. That means he's everywhere at all times. My father is omniscient, means he's got complete and perfect knowledge of all things. My father is omnipotent, meaning he's all powerful. My father is immutable, meaning he doesn't change. Can I tell you that is amazing? I won't wake up tomorrow thinking, I wonder how God's going to feel about me today. I wonder if God will be near or far. I wonder if God will have changed his mind about our relationship. Every day, God is the same. God, my father is eternal, meaning he has no beginning or end. He's not bound by time. My father is sovereign. He's supreme in rule and authority over all things. Could give along, my father is loving, righteous, holy, perfect, caring, kind, compassionate. Isn't it amazing that you can consider God as your dad? Now, I know for some that seems like, wait, that's too much. You can't call father, yes, but calling him dad. But the way that Jesus taught us to refer to and understand and even relate to the term uh, Abba, Abba Father, in Aramaic, translates in our language as dad. 
because the word became flesh, I can now relate with God, not in abstract ways, but as a son, as a child of God, with God as my father. I think one of the things that uh, this is John writing his gospel, uh, hence the gospel of John. At the end of John's life, he wrote some more letters uh, appropriately titled 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. And in 1 John, there we go. In 1 John, John again reflecting on the amazingness of being called a son or daughter, a child of God. He says this, how great. And just stop right there. Because he wants you to stop and consider it. Like, this is amazing. How great is this? Like, this is the greatest thing. How great is the love the Father, again, the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that's what you are. It's amazing. This Christmas, you can know that God is a generous God because he's made a way for you to relay with him as father, that you could be a son, a daughter, a kid of the king. What an amazing gift that he has given to us. Now, I think the next question becomes, well, how does one become part of God's family? Do you just sign up somewhere? Like, is there like a membership card? Is there certain things you, you need to do? Do you, is it like Santa theology? If you just perform, then you're in. If you're, then you're out. If you don't perform. Now, this is really heartbreaking to me because I, I meet so many different people who answer this question in so many different ways. And they generally answer this question in ways that are most comfortable and convenient to them. But Jesus, the one who is the word become flesh, who is God incarnate, he answered this question for us. He didn't give us an option of like, well, you, there's four different ways you can do this. John 1, 12, but to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. Do you believe that Jesus is God, that he is God incarnate? I'm going to guess that there's a lot of people who would say, yeah, I'm okay to believe that. I, I'm fine to verbally believe and say, yeah, Jesus, I get it. Christmas, he came, he's God in flesh. Maybe not all of us would agree with that, but I'm going to guess most of us would be okay with that. But that's not enough. That's not what Jesus said. If you believe and then accept. Now, imperfect example here, but if I told you that I believe that this chair can hold me for 40 minutes, while I'm sharing this message with you, I believe with all my heart, with all my mind, with all of who I am, that that chair can hold me for 40 minutes. But yet then I stood next to that chair for 40 minutes. There would come a point in time where you'd be like, well, do you really believe that? Because if you did believe it, you'd get your butt in the chair and you'd sit down. You wouldn't just talk about you believe that the chair would hold you. You demonstrate your belief by sitting actually in the chair. And this is what Jesus says. Believe that God, that Jesus is God incarnate. But he goes on, John goes on to say, but all who believed him and accepted him. So belief in Jesus is good, it's crucial, it's important. But to be part of the family of God, scripture makes clear, we believe and we accept. All right, so what's it mean to accept? What does it really practically look like to accept Jesus? Well, Again, imperfect analogy here, but 
I believe that Kyla is my wife. 15 years ago, this coming Valentine's Day, actually, 15 years ago, uh, I accepted, and she accepted me, thankfully, as her husband, and I accepted her as my wife. So I don't just believe that Kyla is my wife and there's no relationship. I accepted her into my life. I accepted her as my wife. And for the past 15 years, it's just me and her. I don't believe that other women are my wife. I don't look at other women and say, well, I believe that they're my wife as well. I believe Kyla is because I've also accepted Kyla as my wife. I don't entertain other options. I'm not out there. It's just me and her. And again, imperfect metaphor maybe, but I think what happens is, and this is one of the hardest things for people to to wrap their mind around is, to be a child of God, to be in God's family, it's believing in Jesus and accepting Jesus, and that's it. It's having a relationship with just Jesus. It's not having a, a relationship with Jesus plus your good works, plus your good performance, plus going to a certain type of church. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. So when you ask me, well, Michael, how do you know you're a a son of God, a child of God? Well, I believe Jesus and I've accepted him. That's it. There's the end of sentence. This summer, we did a great series in Colossians. And one of the main themes was Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And I want you to know and have confidence that you're a child of God, not because of what you do or will do. You are a child called God as father because of Jesus, a belief and acceptance, meaning you begin a relationship with him. I began a relationship with Kyla 15 years ago, and it's just been me and her ever since. So it's not Jesus plus a relationship with anything or anyone else. It's just Jesus that brings us into the family of God. Again, if the word did not become flesh, if God did not show up, if Jesus didn't come, This is not possible. Before I move on to the third and final point, do you know him as father? Like, do you know God as father? Not just as a a good theological thing to think about, but do you really know God as father? And as you think about that, is your answer connected to it's because I believe in Jesus and I've accepted Jesus and that's it? That's what scripture makes clear, John 1, 12. Uh, to those who believed him, accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. My heart for you, if you can't answer that question right now, would be to say, today's your day. Today's a day where you become a child of God because you believe in Jesus and you begin a relationship with Jesus and Jesus alone. Number three, the third effect the word becoming flesh has is Again, this is amazing. He gives us grace upon grace. Because the word became flesh, his light conquered the darkness. Because the word became flesh, I now can be called a child of God. And because the word became flesh, we receive from him, from Jesus, grace upon grace. Verse 16 in chapter one, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For him, For from him, his fullness, we have received, all received grace upon grace. What does that mean? Grace upon grace. I wrote it down like this. The love that God has for you, 
his faithfulness, provision, kindness, presence with you is available to you at all times and all places. There is no point in your life where you could ever exhaust God's love, his kindness, his care, his concern, his faithfulness in your life. Every single day, it's another wave of God's grace in your life, another wave of his love, another wave of his provision. Day by day, moment by moment, literally minute by minute, it's just grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. This is what's so amazing about Christmas. It reminds me of the light has come. It's defeated the darkness. I can be a son, a child of God. And because of that, grace upon grace. Lamentation says it beautifully. Old Testament, the faithful love of the Lord, it never ends. His mercies never cease. Great is the faithfulness. Great is his faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh each morning. You will never exhaust God. You'll never wake up and be like, God, I need more love. And you, his response will be, man, I'm totally out. I was given so much to all these other people. I got nothing left for you. That would never happen. Every day. Every day. Now, how would you answer these questions? Have you ever wondered any of these things? And how would you answer them? Well, how will I ever survive this situation or this circumstance I find myself in? How about this? How can this relationship, it's so broken, it's so busted, there's so much bitterness and pain, how can this relationship possibly ever get repaired? How can I ever be healed from the scars of these wounds that I carry? How will I ever be free from this addiction, this addiction that has just kept me in chains, days, weeks, months, years. I keep going back to it. I keep looking at this. I keep shooting this. I keep drinking this. I keep thinking this. How will I ever break free from this addiction? How will I ever be able to provide for my needs and the needs of those around me? How will I ever know what to do with my life and which direction I should go? How will I ever be forgiven for the same things, for the same sins I just keep doing again and again and again. Do you know the answer to all of those questions is John 1.16, grace upon grace. It is God's grace. What you need, what I need more than anything every day, every moment is grace upon grace upon grace. You can memorize this verse before you leave here today. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. It says this, My grace is all you need. What you need more than anything else in your life is the grace of God. Because the grace of God manifests itself in so many different ways. It's not just pardon for things we've done wrong. It's power to live the life that God's called us to live. It's his love. It's his care. It's his concern. It's his faithfulness. It's his provision. It's his spirit, Holy Spirit, that's been given to lead us and instruct us and guide us and help us and encourage us. Grace upon grace, what we need, what we have is grace upon grace. Why? Well, because the word became flesh. If the word did not become flesh, there's no light. If the word did not become flesh, I would have no hope of ever being called a child of God. If the word did not become flesh, I would not have 
what I need more than anything in my life to live the life that God has for me and that I wouldn't have grace upon grace. But this Christmas, I hope you know and would be convinced that God is a generous God. His gifts are absolutely amazing, but generosity is seen first and foremost in to whom those gifts are given. And God has given those gifts to each of us, not because we earned it, deserved it, merited it, performed for it. He's given us those gifts because he's a generous God. Final question. How do you be generous? Like, how would you go from here? And in many ways, I don't like how this was titled just the season to be generous because it, it might lead you to think that you've just got two more days and then you can go back to not being generous. So this is a bigger question of what would it look like for you, one who has received the generosity of God to live a generous life? And my heart, my challenge for you, again, your credit card statement or the lack of cash now in your wallet will not be the marker for how generous you've been over these past few weeks and leading to the next few days. I hope some of you are going to be given some great gifts, some big gifts, some fun gifts, but your generosity will not be seen when your visa bill comes and it's just got hundreds of dollars or thousands of dollars in gifts that you gave. That would be a nice thing to do, a kind thing to do. But again, what I want you to think about is who would you be generous to this year? Generosity is not just about the gift. Again, generosity was seen and God came. Jesus showed up in a relationship. So who would you be generous to today, tomorrow, Christmas Day? Who is the one, two, three people in your life are not expecting anything from you? That you could call them, you could email them, you could text them, you could write even a letter to them expressing, I just want you to know, I love you, I'm thankful for you. I've not told you that in months, if not years, but I wanted you to know my God has been so generous to me and my heart is, I want just to love you. And this coming year, I want to build a new relationship with you. If you would be generous, be generous relationally. And the hope of you being generous relationally as you give yourself to those around you is that they would catch a glimpse of the one who's been generous to you. The greatest gift that we can obviously give to people is to communicate them, communicate to them that God's come, that God's made it possible. So this Christmas, today, tomorrow, Christmas Day, be generous. Be generous with what God's been generous to you with, with relationship, with his love, his grace, his kindness. Again, shock somebody. Don't just be generous with people who've been generous towards you. That's just called a gift exchange. I'm giving you a gift because I got one from you last year and I felt guilty for the last 363 days, 64 days, and now I'm going to give you a gift. Be generous to someone who's not going to do anything for you. Be generous to someone who's not going to give you anything this year. 
And maybe, just maybe, your act of relational generosity would just paint a picture of our God as a generous God. Father God, we give thanks that you are a generous, generous God. God, I give thanks that we do not need to wonder, be confused about what you're like because you came. You showed up. Jesus, we give thanks that you took on flesh. So Jesus, thanks for coming. Thank you for coming to dwell amongst those that you created. Jesus, I give thanks that you are the light and your light conquers the darkness. Jesus, I give thanks that because of you, to those who believe, to those who accept, we could be called sons and daughters. We could be children, kids of the king. And Jesus, because you've come, I just give thanks that it's grace upon grace upon grace upon grace, unending grace. Heavenly Father, I just ask that if there's one person, if not more, that has not believed and not accepted Jesus, God, I pray that that heart right now would be so open to receive. And if that's you, it's just express to God that you believe that Jesus is God and that you accept him. You begin that relationship with him. If that's you, just express that to God where you sit in your heart. And for those of you who have done that, give thanks. Give thanks for the light that is within, for the amazing truth that you're a child. And give thanks to God for the grace he's given.